Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best novels directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here with Alex Gilly, the author of the fast-paced, multifaceted thriller Devil's Harbor. Alex, welcome. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. All right. Now, seriously, I'm, I'm reading that this is your debut novel, but I've read the novel. It's fantastic. I'm not buying that this is a debut, no, that debut novel. So how many novels do you have in your drawer that, uh, that you used as practice for this? This is my debut novel, but this is the latest of a long <laughs> drafts. Uh, I got to say, there were a lot of drafts before the one that you're reading, and this is probably the first one that I've written from beginning to end. There's been quite a few false starts, but this is the first one that that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and not just a beginning and a middle. Well, that's that's extraordinary that the first one with a beginning, a middle, and an end wound up with a publishing contract and and wound up this good. Thank you very much. Alex, give us your author's overview of Devil's Harbor, if you would. Sure. It's the story of a uh, marine interdiction agent who gets sucked into a a whirlpool of criminal enterprise, of, 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 of an evil criminal enterprise off the coast of Southern California. Basically, your protagonist, Nick Finn, who's just a phenomenal character, by the way. I really liked Finn. Um, but he is, he's out on a boat looking for people doing things they shouldn't be doing out on the water. And, and not like speeding and things like that, but smuggling and doing terrible things. And you, uh, smuggling is the main thing, either contraband or people. The book opens with a, with a prologue. And in the prologue, there's some... Some pretty exciting stuff that goes on. He's out there with his partner, Diego. He sees a boat that's uh, running without lights, and he wants to find out what's going on. So they, they try and get the, the, the boat captain to, I don't know, to, to let him know what's going on. So they, they do various things. The guy takes off, and then they try and stop them. And there are two things that they do in the prologue. So I'm not giving anything away. It's in the prologue. The two things they do that are pretty harrowing. I, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about both of those and how many times you practiced both of those to be sure you had it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I went out on the harbor with... Uh... <laughs> you know, in a speed boat and a length of rope and said, look, this has got to be do- feasible before I put it into the book. <laughs> no, that actually came, um, I, I did speak with some marine interdiction agents who, who told me some stories that, um, that really raised my eyebrows. But um, I also get news alerts to, uh, you know, keywords that are related to what I'm writing about. And that I actually read about uh, some agents attempting that, not on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, mm-hmm. in that they tried to, look, I may as well just say it's in the prologue, they tried to slow a boat by uh, fouling its propeller in a, in a length of rope. You know, so I thought, well, that would be a lot of fun to put into the book uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a way to kind of, you know, use a length of line as a tripwire to stop a boat. And, and that actually happened after Finn tried to board the boat while it was trying to escape from them. So they're going pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> One boat's trying to get away. The uh, Finn's boat's going it, it's a bigger engine. It's 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 a chase boat basically, and he's yeah. trying to board the boat while it's going. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to end well. And and uh, of course, 
<laughs> you know, that was the first thing they tried, and then they had to try the second thing. But that's a great opening scene. Your description of being out on the water, uh, the descriptions are so vibrant. You must spend a lot of time out on the water. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time when I was younger. I've now got a 19-month-old son, so I don't spend that much time <laughs> on it anymore. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, when I was younger, I used to spend a lot of time out in the water. I loved the water. I loved um, uh, you know, my dad was a sailor. We 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 did a couple of uh, big trips together. We once sailed from France to the Caribbean together. Holy cow! Uh, yeah, just yeah. you and your so father? That, no, no, my brother was there as well. And then we had there were there were seven of us in all on the. It was a seventy-two foot sloop, and uh, there were seven of us crewing it all together. But uh, it, but it was you know it was it was it was. The first time I'd been at sea without seeing land for two weeks, which was, you know, a real eye opener when you're when you're when you're a young man. And I also like surfing. I used to spend a lot of time surfing when I was younger, and um, and that was good as well. I also did a big trip, surfing trip down the west coast of Mexico, and a lot of um, the scenes that occur later in the novel mm-hmm. uh, were were drawn from my, my, my memories of that particular trip and places that I visited during that trip, fictionalized, of course, but um, for the color and the feel of the place, it certainly, was, it, it certainly came out of that trip. Now, listeners can probably get a sense that you, that you have a, a bit of an accent. You're in Sydney, Australia right now, but you yeah. were born yeah. in the U.S. If I have this right, you were born in the U.S., yeah. educated in Australia, um, but you've sort of lived all over the world. My parents, neither of whom were American, but they were both students in New York City, and that's where they met and were married, and that's where I was born. Um, and then... Had jobs which took had a job which took him to uh, you know we lived in the Middle East when I was a little boy and um, in Europe for a while and, and my dad who was Australian we eventually ended up in Australia and my mother who was French her um, parents were diplomats so she um, also you know we 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 spent a lot of, it was a very kind of we were kind of lucky in the sense that it was very international and we had um you know family everywhere and moved around a lot you have also been a translator and i i get the sense from yeah. from being at your website which is alexjilly.com a l e x g i l l y.com um that you yeah. you translate books that's right yeah and, and I translate uh, fiction and nonfiction. I have read a number of books that have been translated, and I don't really understand how that process works. It just seems like it would be so difficult to get the author's point across in a in a concise way when when you're working with two different languages. How challenging is that? I think it's pretty challenging. It's a bit like, I don't know if you do crosswords, but the, the payoff is the same feeling you get when you, when you finally get a clue in a crossword. So you're sitting there dealing with some text that, that, that is in the source language, and you're trying to figure out what is the best way that I can render this into the target language without it being um, sounding translated or awkward or, or clumsy. And, you know, you mess around with it for quite a while, and then finally you have that eureka moment, just like with the crossword, and you're like, oh, this is exactly how it should be. And that's a real sense of satisfaction. I will say that being a translator, I think, has really helped me as a writer 
maybe not so much with the storytelling aspect, but certainly with the style and the writing aspect of it, because translation translating encourages you to read very closely. You, you, you think mm-hmm. a lot about syntax. You think a lot about levels of meaning. You, you, you really don't want to be caught out by the author, um, you know, if he's got a double meaning or an irony. You don't, really don't want to miss it. You're trying to stay alert to all those kind of things. So it does make you read a lot more closely and uh, in a way that perhaps you lose if you, if you, if you just uh, read in one language and you kind of get used to just skimming over things. You know, you do slow down, think about what was said, reread the sentence. And that, I think, helps as a writer, at least. It makes me, I think it's helped me be a better writer, being a translator for all those years. Now, as as an author, you we, we talked a little bit about the multiple drafts for your manuscript, and then you send what you think is the finished manuscript to the publisher, and then it comes back, and then there are more changes, and, and back and forth. How does it work when you're translating? Because it, you're finished, it's it's done to the best of your ability. Who checks it? The it's a, it's a good question. There's a um, often it's the agent. So uh, the. the there are agents who are trying to sell the text, or, you know, the book into different territories, but the lingua franca is English. So if you've written a book, if a Frenchman has written a book and the agent wants to sell it to Brazil, um, it's more than likely that the Brazilians might not read French, but they might, they'll read English. So they'll want the first 50 pages in English. Mm-hmm. And, not in Portuguese. And so, and so you will, uh, you know, I've done this before the Frankfurt Book Fair, for instance, translate the first 50 pages of a book for a French agent to sell to a Brazilian publisher. And the French agent will usually have some people who are bilingual or, you know, very proficient in both languages. And what they're looking for is a book that reads well um, in the target language. You know, no matter how well written the book is in the source language, if you make it clumsy in the target language, people are going to just think it's a bad book. You know, and and you can see that when you read, when you compare, compare when you compare different translations of the same book. Um, a lot of the classics now have been translated several times, and mm-hmm. if you line them up side by side, if you line up versions of Anna Karenina or any of you know the big Russian writers, it's quite interesting to see how different the translations are. I could see how that could really help you as a writer, just going through this entire process. Now, let's get back quickly to Devil's Harbor and uh, yeah. and Finn. Finn is Finn is a is a character who is flawed, like any good character. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that makes him interesting for uh, a series character, and, and this is going to be a series, and I was so pleased to to learn that from spending some time at your website. But Finn has an interesting marriage, and uh, his wife plays a pivotal role in the book. And it's you don't see a lot of those uh, interesting marriage-type things in books like this. It's interesting that you pick up on that, Stephen, because in the early drafts, Finn was not married. I won't give anything away to the readers, but um, the, the other major female character was in those early drafts, but, but his wife, Mona, wasn't. And then, in between the first drafts and the final draft, I got married. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, why wouldn't he be married? I mean, why, you know, and, um, and so, and, and so I made a minor character, uh, I elevated her to a sort of major role. And then I'm, I'm now 
from the 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 next book because Forge, I have a, a terrible deal with Forge, my publisher. So I'm, I'm writing the next Finn book. But Mona, his wife, is going to have much more prominent role in this one than she did in the in the first one in Devil's Harbor, and that. Um, uh, she's going to be a lot more involved in the actual uh, investigation. And I quite like the idea of a husband and wife team working together. It doesn't mean they see eye to eye about everything, like every husband and wife team, but they, they, they're heading for the same goal, even though they have their own kind of independent characters, you know. In this case, they really have their own uh, sense of independent character. But uh, Mona was a, yeah. a great character, and uh, it's always a pleasure for me to, to read a book where the protagonist is married and, uh, you know, it just adds something that's missing from a lot of books. So I, I, it's, it's interesting that you said you decided to do that after you got married. I think there's a lot of lone wolf detectives out there. You know, who, who who go home and lonely and, and, and you know, listen to jazz and, and, and drink <laughs> bourbon. And I felt like I felt like it was a well-trodden kind of path. And I quite like the idea of him being a married man. And I, I thought it might add something. It, and it does. So, Alex, what's the best way for people to keep up with you and uh, to check out your book, Devil's Harbor? Uh, maybe get on a mailing list so they could uh, be notified when new books come out. I think that would be the best way. Uh, my website is alexgilly.com, so A-L-E-X-G-I-L-L-Y. Uh, and that's definitely where I'll keep uh, you know, updating with all the latest information on the sequel uh, and any other um, uh, you know, books that are coming out to do with Finn and Mona. So, Alex, this has been great. It was a pleasure reading your book and a pleasure speaking with you about it. Stephen, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is Stephen Campbell, and we've been discussing Devil's Harbor with Alex Gilly. The book is available everywhere great books are sold. You can find show notes for this episode with links to Alex's website and everything we've talked about at crimefiction, www.crimefiction.fm. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk again soon.